hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 3, 1 through 32. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joyada, the son of Paseah, and Meshullam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hatush, the son of Heshabiah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath-Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalem, the son of Helohash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gates. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakaram, repaired the Dungate. He built it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalem, the son of Calhosa, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Heshabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of their surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section, from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palel, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padeah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites, 
repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, nicely done. I was wondering how those names were pronounced. That was awesome. Whew. Okay. Now you got to hear a message on that. Oh, my goodness. All right, well, let's pray and ask God for a little help here. Uh, Father, thank you for your word. We do believe it is uh, from you. We thank you that you gave it uh, through real people um, and real situations. And this reminds us again that you work through ordinary people with crazy names. And uh, so we're thankful, Father. Uh, they're, they're, that's us. That's us here. Um, and so, God, we would pray that as we come to your word, that ultimately whom we would see uh, is that we would see Christ in this, that we would see what you are doing through Christ, even in our day, even as we learn from that day. So uh, we pray, please work. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, God calls us into big things. He was calling them in Nehemiah's day into a big thing. Um, as I was thinking about this, you know, just as you think in terms of the New Testament and some of the scripture that we have, I'm just going to turn to Colossians 3 for you just for a minute. I have it up on the screen. You can turn your Bibles if you'd like to. But as I was thinking of the, the big things that God calls us, listen to this. He says in Colossians 3 verse 5, he says, put to death whatever, therefore whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, that's a big thing. He's calling us to. Uh, down to verses uh, 12 through 15. He says, Put on, uh, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, and kindness, and humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. God calls us to really big things. Uh, we go down a little bit further, if that wasn't enough for you. Uh, verse 18, same passage. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So God calls us to big things. And certainly what we find here are there are big things in our hearts of which God is calling us to. And yet, even as we just quickly read through there, we recognize that those things seep over into our relationships with one another. And so uh, he says, bear up, bear up with one another, forgive one another. Well, that's hard to do. That's hard to do in the one another's. God's calling us the big things. But then you read this and you recognize particularly that second part or the last part, and that is that God calls us to uh, do big things in our community, uh, in, with other people that don't know Jesus Christ yet, outside the church. So our businesses, our schools, uh, civic government, God is calling us to rebuild our communities, to rebuild our culture that recognizes that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe and this is a big thing. Um, so we read God's story, beginning from Genesis. We call that the cultural mandate. He's been calling us to do that, to press out his glory out into our world, starting here and then moving on out, even as we were looking at what is going on in Kenya. This is what God is calling us to do. It is a big thing. 
Well, in hearing the bad state, the uh, sad state of the condition of Jerusalem, namely the sad state of the walls and the non-existent gates, Nehemiah, a man in a significant position in the civic government of Persia, he begins to pray. See, this is first of the kind of the three dynamics thus far that we've learned about in terms of effective leadership, and that is that effective leadership begins with your relationship with God. And so Nehemiah, he begins with his relationship with God, and he begins to pray. He knows something about God, and that's this. In verse 5, chapter 1, he says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. This kind of sets us up for big things. But he also knows uh, us uh, and how God relates to us, who keeps covenants. God is the one who keeps a covenant. He relates to us through covenants. And so he knows uh, that we are relating to him through a covenant. And he also knows the human condition, and that is that he knows that humans are those who have fallen, those who have sinned against God, that in their best days, they are still bad days in terms of them being broken with God. And so we have, he knows that uh, we are dependent upon God's grace. And so he says, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That is chesed love. That is this faithful covenant love with unfaithful people. God's chesed, his steadfast love, uh, he says, and goes on uh, uh, with those who love him and keep his commandments. Um, so that even our love for him and our desire to obey him comes as a result of him first uh, loving us, first moving in us to want to obey him. That is his covenantal love with his people. And so what he does is he owns up to their failure, he grabs a hold of God's grace, and then he simply listens. He prays for three months, and he listens and God puts upon him his, on his heart somewhere within those three months that he is the one that God is calling to rebuild the walls, to make a difference there in Jerusalem. So the first dynamic of effective leadership begins with one's relationship to God. So husbands, the leadership of your wife begins with you being a man of God. Um, fathers, mothers, leading your children begins with you being a man and woman of God. Singles, uh, your leadership, wherever God has you, begins with you being a man or woman of God. Well, in the beginning of chapter 2, we discovered a second dynamic to effective leadership, and it has to do with one's relationship to superiors. So Nehemiah was submissive to his earthly superior. He knew how important it was to be creative uh, with him and uh, do well with the king. But ultimately, Nehemiah also knew and submitted to his ultimate superior, that is God himself, the king of heaven. And so God calls him to appeal to Artaxerxes, the king, and Artaxerxes responds positively because ultimately God's hand was upon what Nehemiah was doing. Third dynamic effective leadership is seen last week in chapter 2, beginning at verses 9 through 20, and that is that Nehemiah shows the importance of how to lead those under him, providing proper motivation and communicable goals in the proper time. And he also shows how to respond to the inevitable resistance that comes when God is doing uh, a great work uh, because he knows the people are in rebellion with the Creator, and they reject the Savior and the covenant Lord. Well, God calls us to big things. And matter of fact, if you don't want to do big things, if you are only interested in the small world of your own comfortable personal universe, the success of your own family, your singular reputation, the advancement only of your career then don't follow Jesus because he's not interested in those kind of followers. He is interested in those who he has called to do big things, to get outside of our own little worlds and press forward his glory out into, out into the world. So how do we get big things done? How do we get these big things done? Well, let me, let me give you four principles to getting big things done. And let's start with this one. It's pretty obvious uh, if you think about it. Number one, break up the work into manageable parts. Break up the work into manageable parts. Um, if the rebuilding of the walls had been tackled as a task in a whole in of itself, and if only one person or even just a small group of people were to assign to it, the work would have rightfully so seemed impossible. 
Who's going to rebuild an entire one and a half mile worth of wall, or maybe up to two and a half miles wall? I'm not sure exactly how long it was. Nobody. Nobody's going to do that. But when the project is divided into 40 or 41 separate segments, then the project becomes manageable. So he breaks it up, break up the work into manageable parts. Now, we need to warn ourselves of several things. One is we sometimes underestimate uh, our task. And so last week we saw that Nehemiah, although he came with a plan, he realized he needed to really make certain his plan fit with the, the serious situation that the walls were in. And so he, he got there to Jerusalem. And after three days of kind of resting and praying, he went out at night before sharing with anybody else what the plan was or that God had put this upon his heart. He went out in the dark with just a few trusted individuals and they began to look at the walls. He began to inspect the walls. And then he took what he discovered there, and then he, he changed his plans. So sometimes what we do is we move into big plans, but we overestimate the task. And so what do we need to do? We need to get more information. We go to wise individuals to help us understand what that plan is. Uh, so we overestimate or under, uh, underestimate the task. Sometimes, though, just the opposite, we try to do too much. We, we put way too much weight upon ourselves and think that we can do a lot more than what we really can do. We, we don't understand how God understands us. Interestingly enough, God understands our frame better than we understand our own frame. See, we need Psalm 103, verse 14, to be on top of our uh, daily-to-do list, weekly-to-do list, monthly-to-do list. We need to put it over everything that we do, recognizing this, what God said to us. He says, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. <laughs> Sometimes we, we expect more from ourselves than God expects from us. <laughs> and so we over, we over task. And then thirdly, a mistake we make when we do big things is we don't do enough of the right things. We don't do enough of the right things. And that is the basic, the first things, the basic things, the needful things. There's, there's a temptation to do the more spectacular things, the more interesting things. See, when, when Nehemiah got there into, you know, uh, into Jerusalem and he sees these walls, you've got part of the walls, the western part of the walls, and uh, they are partially broken down, and so they have breaches and they need to be repaired. But as he goes to the eastern side, he recognizes that uh, all those walls there need to actually be rebuilt. They actually need to be start from over, and they need to go up to the top of the ridge. And so there's going to be all kinds of things they need to do. First of all, they need to get the resources. And the resources are in the bottom of a valley on both sides. So on the western side, there's this deep valley, and down there are these massive stones that have been broken down from the previous walls. They've got to bring all those up. And they've got to do the same, except on the eastern side, it's the Kidron Valley, and it's even steeper. And so they've got to bring all of that resource. And they've not only got to take it from where it was previously, but all the way up to the ridge top. And, and on the eastern side, they've got to start all over again with the foundation. They've got to start with the foundation. Anytime you build a house, nobody notices the foundation. And yet the foundation is absolutely important for the beauty of the house. And so you've got to start with the needful things, the first things, the needful things, the basic things. It all begins with just small little things in our own lives. Um, think about what God is doing in your own heart with the, the call that he has on your heart. Start with the basic things. The basic things is get into God's word. Spend a little bit of time in God's word. Begin to spend a little bit of time of prayer. Now, don't, over, don't overdo it. If you're not a reader, don't say seven chapters a day, okay? If you've never memorized scripture, or if you've never memorized anything, start slow. Don't do a, don't do a verse a day. <laughs> Maybe a verse a month, you know? Start slow. Gather. You're doing that today. MC, missional community. These are all the foundational. These are the basic things of what it means to grow in and become more what God is calling us to be. Prayer small little things like this. Break it up into manageable parts. Small habits over a long time transforms one's life. All right, number two. We've, we break up the work into manageable parts. Number two, how do we do big things? Well, we do it this way. We recognize the sacredness of the work. We recognize the sacredness of the work. See, one of the, one of the takeaways from uh, this chapter is the, is the earthiness of it. 
of the physicality that is required of what we have here in this chapter. This chapter is as far away from theological speculation as one can get. These individuals are coming home. They're coming home with dirt in their hair. Uh, they're coming with dust on their clothes. Uh, you can just imagine them. They're, they're working and they're sweating in the heat. You see the tension of their muscles. They've got to come up with some kind of uh, what we would consider crude machines, some kind of ingenuity to get these massive stones out of the valley floor. This is working with with earth. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yet there's a recognition... Then in this physical world, this this physical stuff that we're talking about here, there is a recognition of the sacredness of the work. And we see that in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanel. Now, What we see there is we see the spiritual consecrated. We see that being mixed in with doors and uh, walls and towers. It's not by accident that Nehemiah, as he's wanting to describe the building of the wall, he could have started anywhere. He starts, no, in the, uh, in the northeast side, and it's not by accident. The first person he mentions is the high priest. Nehemiah's intention is to show that the one who has the crucial role within the context of the temple to minister on behalf of God's people, the high priest, was also part of the physical labor. He and his brothers, the priests, had put down their priestly tools and taken up construction tools to build the sheep gate. That's that gate in the northeasternmost part of the city, and it was the gate, as it identifies, is where the sheep came into the city for sacrifices to go to the temple. And then look what they did. They consecrated it and set its doors. You know, if you've ever installed a door, how many of you installed a door? I mean, it, it, yeah, there's a few of you. There's a few brave souls here to install the door. It looks really easy. I mean, just what do you do? Open a door, you put some hinges on it, and you know, walk on through, right? That's what we do. That's what I do. Little do we know how difficult it is to put in a door and the physicality of it and, and the, you know, all kinds of things. You've got to shims and all these kinds of things. Uh, you know, uh, like, obviously, I haven't done it. Um, it's, but this is a... This is an absolutely important position, important door for what? The sheep to come through for sacrifice. And so there's this combination of the, uh, the, the physical task and the spiritual. The word consecrated can be translated sanctify or to be set apart. In Eliashib's an estimation of the work, their spiritual work as representing the people of God at the temple and their building a gate or a wall were no different in terms of its importance before the living God of the universe. So they consecrated it the wall. As far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel, so that their portion of this overall work, so their portion was just the northern section of the, of the city, their portion of the overall work was representative of the entire work, which later, as we will discover in chapter 12, and it's completed in form, it too is set apart. The walls were consecrated, the gates were set, were set apart, they were purified. We'll see that in chapter 12. So that what, be, what you do before the gathering and what you do after the gathering is as sacred as in the gathering when you are in Christ. What we naturally tend to do is we tend to wall off our lives into compartments. Um, Corinthian believers was an example of this. Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, he discovers something, and that is that he hears that they're gathering together for a meal, much like our MCs. They're gathering together, they're going to be eating, but within the context of those MCs, they're also going to be taking the Lord's Supper. But it's an interesting thing that happens in these these MCs, if you will, these missional communities. Uh, Some are getting actually drunk. 
And others are going to the front of the line. You know what they're doing? They're heaping on food on their plates, and so they're going through the line. And by the time the last ones are coming through the line, what are they getting? They're getting carrot sticks. And so they, so they do this, and then what do they do? They, then they enter into the religious point or the spiritual point of their time, and now they're going to take the Lord's Supper, much what we would call kind of our main event, that is our time of prayer and time of going into curriculum. Can you imagine if that happened within our MCs? And that's exactly what was going on there in Corinth. And so he has to remind them, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body matters. The physical matters. See, what you do, your calling in life, it's sacred. You're a cashier, construction worker, psychologist, homemaker, Uber driver, whatever it is you do is sacred because Christ is in you. We have students here. What you do in school is sacred. So if you're in geometry class, the work you do there is sacred. If you are in band playing your instrument, is sacred. If you're a basketball player, basketball is sacred. If you're an artist, if you're in shop, if you're in coding, what you do matters, it is sacred. So as we talk about finding a permanent home for Sacred City Church, what are we doing? We are, what we are doing is we are looking for a physical building. We're talking about dirt here. We're talking about walls and roofs and AC units and carpets and doors and windows, physical things. And we're asking one another to contribute, you know, dollars, <laughs> no bread, right? Bucks, coin. Dough, kale, loot, moolah, scratch, tinder, real earthy stuff. And it's not surprising that this is sacred, for Christ is over all. And where does he do his work? He works in the physical. He calls us to rebuild our callings. He, he's calling us to rebuild our communities. He's calling us to rebuild our places to reflect more and more his glory, just like uh, he was calling the exiles to rebuild Jerusalem to exalt, to, to reflect his glory. Which brings me to number three, and that is how do we do big things? Well, how do we do big things? Number three is we stay focused and thus unified around the clear purpose for the work. And their purpose in Nehemiah's day is still our purpose today. So I want you to see that. And let, let's look again at what Nehemiah hears when he learns of the condition of Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 3. He hears this. They said to him, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So the first thing he says is the exiles are in great trouble, and that is that physically they are vulnerable to attack. But if you heard there, notice also they are living in shame. And that is that the condition of their lives in their city does not reflect well on their theology. See, they claim that God is great, that he is sovereign in control of all things. They claim that he is glorious, so they don't have to fear others. They claim that he is good, so they don't have to look elsewhere for their satisfaction. They claim that he is gracious, so they don't have to prove themselves. But you look at their lives in the condition of the place where the living God of the universe meets with his people, and he doesn't look so great, so glorious, so good, so gracious. So they're living in shame in those claims. 
So God puts on Nehemiah's heart to rebuild the walls, and so it is this vulnerability and this shame or derision that he calls it that Nehemiah comes to them, and he comes to them and says, this is what we need to do. We need to rebuild the laws, uh, the walls. And so verse uh, 17 of, of chapter 2, we heard this. You see, he says, the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And then he gives them this good news. And I told them that the hand of my God had been upon me for my good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And it had its effect. Let us rise, the people said. Let us rise and build for the glory of God. So it's remarkable that as we focus in on and are unified around the glory of God, it is also for our good. And so, look what happens when you do that. When you focus in on the glory of God, it brings unity. Look at first at who's involved. You have, um, you have first of all, the spiritual leaders. You've got the priests. We saw that already in verse 1, the northern portion of the wall. But then you go down to verses uh, 17 through 19. Look at verse 17. It says here, verse 17, After him the Levites repaired. Now, the Levites were those who are the, you know, that's the tribe where all the priests come from. And so you need to understand the Levites in terms of who they are. and how, We can understand it within comparison to our military. And that is that our military has active, uh, active individuals, and then they have those who are reservists. So Eliashib and his, and the priests that were working on the northern part of the wall, they're the act, in active service. They're actually doing, doing the work there within the temple, and so they're an active service. But we got the reservists, and the reservists either live within the city or they live in the surrounding parts of the city. So the reservists are called up, and they are coming in, and they're coming to the eastern side of the, of the city to build the walls there, and this is where they are building. Uh, look down at verse 20, uh, verses 20 through 21. And after him, Baruch, the son of Rabbi, oh, sorry, Zabbi, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashi, the high priest. Well, where's Eliashib? Well, we know where he is. He's working on the wall in the northern section. And so the reservists come in and they're working on the walls in front of his house. After him, Merimoth. And we know Merimoth was a priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. So you have priests, you have spiritual leaders, but you also have professionals. Verse 8, professionals. Next to them, Uzziel, the son of Herhiah, uh, goldsmiths repaired. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And this is the first mention of individuals, of professional groups or guilds. There are three different groups that are mentioned within this chapter. We've got the goldsmiths and the perfumers. But the third group are the merchants. Look down at verses 31 and 32. Verses 31 and 32. And after him, Micaiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Now, now keep in mind, we're looking at names, and these are only the leaders of these guilds, and so it's not only just these individuals, it's a whole group, group of people. These are guilds that are coming together, and they're doing the work. Now, it's believed that there are other guilds, uh, not named, but still part of the work, had an important part of the work. It, it's, it's a name that we became familiar with in the pandemic, the essential workers. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Remember where you fit? You're either essential or you're not essential, you know? Kind of had an identity crisis there for a little bit. The essential workers, we know at least of two other guilds. One was the bakers. And the second were the pottery makers. That is, they made that which carries the water. And so we know that there are more guilds were working. There were actually others who were working to help build the walls. The essential workers, they were the ones that are providing the food, and they were the ones who were providing the water. So we have a whole group of professionals coming around the spiritual leaders. But we also have the civic leaders, rulers. Verse 9, for instance. Look at verse 9. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, 
repair. Now, the only thing we know about Raphia here is, is what we learned here, and that is that he's a ruler, and he has some kind of official civic authority within the district of Jerusalem, and it is such a large district that it requires two rulers, and so his co-ruler is found down in verse 12. Ruler, Shalom, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem. And look what he does. He and his daughters. He gets his daughters involved. <laughs> yes. And there are a number of rulers that are identified from communities all around Jerusalem. So you can see that in verses 16 through 19. So now we have spiritual leaders. We've got professionals. We've got, we've got these uh, civic leaders, and now we've got leaders from other communities. So, for example, look back up, or look at verse 13. Verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gates, and they rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Now, the community of Zenoah... Uh, was located about 15 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and they're located in a region called Shephelah. And the reason why it's important to know where they're located is because they were located in a region that looks very much like where Jerusalem was. And that is that they, had, uh, they, they, they lived in a section of area where there's lots of steep valleys. And so we have this man, Hanun, who was a leader within Zenoah, and he has now uh, collected uh, those who are in, in there. He's recruited neighbors, and they've come, and they're doing a significant amount of work where? On the western side of the wall. And if you heard me earlier, the western side of the wall is a steep valley. God has already prepared them to know what it means to bring up heavy, massive stones up to the top of the valley. And so we have... We have these ingenuity, we have manpower, leaders in the communities, and they're coming from all around, and that's just one example of several. Now, before we leave those who are involved, we do have to note a few chumps, a few turkeys in the bunch. Verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now, we don't know much about these nobles, but we do know this. They were above this manual work. They were nobles. They had somehow been in a position of, of power, a position of wealth, and they were not going to be doing this kind of work. They got off their, their eyes off the purpose, the glory of God. They forgot the one who was behind their prosperity and their position this is why Paul warned in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. See, the simple reality is that one's ability to make wealth and wealth itself is a gift from the Lord. However, even if these nobles refuse to work, the rest of the Tekoa community has nothing to be ashamed of, for they are responsible not only for this section of the wall, but then you go down to verse 27, and they show up again. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Wow, the unifying power of a shared purpose. Now we see who work. Now look at how they did their work. The phrase is introduced in verse 2 and then repeated in this and in similar forms. And it goes this way, verse 2. Next to them. Next to them. Repeated over and over and over again. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of shared enthusiasm, uh, of unity in a work that is larger than any one individual. They are shoulder to shoulder in a common cause. And we can imagine men and women moving back and forth, shouting encouragement to their neighbors who is working on their portion of the wall, sharing tools as they go along, laughing at the goofs of the, of the individual down there who doesn't really know how to put up a door after all, uh, sharing wall-building tips to one another. 
next to him, the unifying power of a shared purpose. And finally, now look at where they work. Look at where they work. Now, we see it most clearly on the eastern side uh, of the wall. And the reason we do that is because uh, it's there where there are no reference points. Remember, I told you that they're bringing the wall up not from the valley, or from the valley, they're bringing up to a ridge. So they're starting all over again on the eastern side. And so there's really no gates, as we saw on the western side, north or western side. There are no gates to kind of put a point of reference. And so what he has to do is he has to put a point of reference that people are familiar with, and that is homes or houses. And so look what we have here in verse 23. And I think this shows where they were actually working. Verse 23. And after them, Benjamin and Heshub repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Masai, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. Or you go down over to verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, he repaired. He's a guard. He repaired as well. So where are they doing the repairing? Where are they repairing their wall? Right outside their front door, where God has placed them. Where is God calling each one of us to glorify him? Wherever he has put us. That's simple. So how do we do big things? Well, we stay focused and unified around the clear purpose for the work, and that is to glorify God wherever you are, whoever you are, all of us working together. Well, number four, and lastly, um, how do we do big things? Well, we, we give credit where credit is due. We give credit where credit is due. See, what we have here really in chapter 3 is we have this leader, we have Nehemiah, and he's reflecting back on the accomplishment of the wall. And he's realizing, you know what? This was done through a whole bunch of people. This is done through a whole bunch of, uh, what did you say, rednecks and uh, blue collars. (laughs) This is done through ordinary people doing work that God has called them to, the seeing their work as that which is sacred, seeing whatever they're doing as a sacred place, as a sacred work, doing it outside their homes, wherever God has placed them, he's recognizing these are all the people who did this great big work. It takes the church. It takes us. But ultimately, giving credit where credit is due, he marvels at God. And so in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, Listen to how we hear the completion of this. So the wall was finished on the, 25th, or sorry, yeah, on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Boy, they thought they were something. And then they discovered the one, God. They fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So think about this. It's an amazing accomplishment. The entire community was mobilized. They worked side by side, harmoniously, simultaneously on all parts of the city wall, which was divided up into 41 sections. The entire workforce did this with unquenchable dedication and ardent enthusiasm as they strained together to complete the task. And they did it with such speed and surprise that the enemies of the exiles were completely caught off guard. Why is it that God was calling Nehemiah and the exiles to do this big thing? Well, it was the show who truly is big. (laughs) So remember the beginning of Nehemiah's prayer went this way. He said, O Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Truly a remarkable feat. And we'll discover even more as we continue on in the narrative of all the difficulties they had along the way that they got this done so quickly. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, turning your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10 is where I want to start. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. And uh, this is how it goes, um, starting right in the middle of the sentence. 
making known to us, this is God the Father, making known to us the mystery of his will. That is, uh, that which was what God's will is, that was previously not known but now known, according to his purpose. God has a purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan. So God's got a plan. And it's a plan that is going to find itself completed in the fullness of time. And here's the plan. To unite all things in him, that is, to unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, how has he determined to do that? How has he determined to unite all things in heaven and on earth? Well, he has determined to do it through the church. And so we come over to chapter 2, and listen to what we read there in verses 18 through 22. Chapter 2, 18 through 22. For through him, Jesus Christ, we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so that would be the, the written word of God that we have here in front of us. Christ Jesus himself, the living word, being the cornerstone. Every is measured by him, in whom the whole stru structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God the Father has purposed to unite all things into Jesus Christ. He reigns at the right hand of the Father, and thus all things are to come under his lordship, all of creation. So everything in life is to come under his lordship. He is pressing his kingdom out through the church. So that for all things that come under his lordship, that is a big thing. No, that's the biggest thing. And when we consider the pushback from the world that we are getting in terms of marriage and sexuality and the place of civic government and education, the role of men and women, what constitutes a family, when that's getting pushed back on us, it's even a bigger task. And I'm not just talking about our country. Then you begin to think of all the rest of the world and the prevalence of Islam and autocratic nations and humanism. All of this has to come under his lordship. And how he has determined to do that is through the church. And he will prevail. See, this is the word to the disciples and specifically Peter. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell. Now remember, gates are defensive means to keep out an invading force, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the church. The Father means for Jesus Christ's kingdom to prevail and for all things to come under his lordship, and he's going to do that through the church. This is big. And this is how he is taking on that big task of rebuilding the world. He's breaking up the work into manageable pieces. So there are gospel-centered churches in villages, right? Villages, towns, cities all over the globe. And as he presses his kingdom in those cities, there are gospel-centered churches like ours. So we have our cities. So like our church and other churches like us who are gospel-centered in these cities, these quad cities. And in each of these churches, take our church for example, it is made up of, let's use Peter's words, living stones. That is you. That's me. That God is doing a rebuilding work. So as you rebuild your lives with Christ as Lord, so God is uniting all things in him. He's breaking up the work into manageable pieces. And it's a sacred work. All of life is sacred, so we must ask, is Christ Lord of all of my life? And we must also ask, what does Christ's lordship mean to my work, my marriage, my friendships, my hobby, my vote, all of life? It's a sacred work. And it's a unifying work as we see the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ being manifested through human beings. And it's a work of thanksgiving giving credit where credit is due, thanksgiving for the grace that God has revealed as lives are changed. And so Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonians, he writes, we give thanks to God always for all of you. So he's, 
He's, re- he's looking and listening, and he's looking at the, in his mind's eye of all those Thessalonian believers. Constantly mentioning you of you in my prayers, remembering before our God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So those real human beings doing work, doing labor, doing steadfastness in Jesus Christ. And so he's rejoicing over that work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. And where did that come from? Well, then Paul says to the Corinthians this way, he says, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so what do we say around here? Evidence of grace. As we see men and women, children changed and transformed, we say, oh, thank God. God be the glory. As God brings all things under the rule of his son, Jesus Christ, like the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, what is good for our good brings him glory. Jesus Christ is creator, he is redeemer, he is Lord, covenant Lord. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took some bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Reminding ourselves that while those laborers, those laborers around Nehemiah's wall, as we call it, they got tired, they didn't always pick it up the way they should have, they weren't real good at what they did, they didn't always obey. Jesus always did. Always fulfilled the will of the Father on our behalf. Always obeyed. Then he took a cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of my covenant shed for you. He called it a new covenant. Because he recognized what Nehemiah recognized, and that is that God is a great God and we are sinners, and so we need someone who has, who has steadfast love, who has chesed. And he says, I've got chesed for you. I'll die for you. I'll shed my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. I'll take the Father's wrath on your behalf. And so as we take this bread and we take this cup, we're reminded again of the great work, the greatest work that God did, Jesus did in the human history, and that is that he died on the cross for our sins to give us life so that we could be people who are part of his plan to rebuild the world. Father, we thank you. If there's anybody here, Father, who's yet to trust in Jesus Christ, may this day be the day of their salvation. May they recognize what we've already confessed, and that is that we have all, we're all prone to wander, and we have all wandered. This past week, we wandered away from you. We wandered from the greatest good, and we, we began to give our love to things that were less. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who died for that, who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins that we could experience your steadfast love and that now as we pray and now as we take this, we take this cup knowing that it is your steadfast love which has made it possible. So may we take it in honor of you, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.